You're listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. We're back from our summer break and happy to be bringing international expertise to you once again. I'm your host, Michael McFall, the director of FSI. Of all the minority groups in the United States, African-American men have the lowest life expectancy. The reason is complicated, and over the years, black men have had no shortage of reasons not to trust the American healthcare system. But according to a new study here at Stanford, at least one solution is pretty straightforward. Hire more black doctors. To tell us more about it, we're joined by our own Dr. Marcella Alshan, an associate professor of medicine at the Stanford Health Policy, and Dr. Owen Garrick, president and CEO of Bridge Clinical Research. First of all, congratulations on the amazing coverage you've gotten for these studies. I've written many studies over decades of my life that nobody reads. Uh, <laughs> and so, I, you know, I think it's really important. FSI thinks it's really important that we do serious scientific research, but that we get those results out into the wider community. And you have done that fantastically well. If you ever need a job on our public relations team, <laughs> we're, 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 we're happy to bring you on board. But no, let's talk about the science for a while. Um, and just help us explain the, the essence of the study, uh, why, you know, why in the first place you thought about thinking about it, and help us to understand how your study, uh, in terms of the focusing on this one variable, more black doctors, yeah. how we can disaggregate and know that that would have a causal effect given all the other factors uh, that might be impacting the health of African-American men. Great. Um, thank you so much for the invitation and the opportunity to discuss our results. We started from a couple of facts. Um, first, the one you mentioned in the introduction that black men have the lowest life expectancy of any major demographic group in the United States. And that much of this gap is actually and somewhat surprisingly explained by the leading causes of death in the United States more broadly. So right. cardiovascular disease and cancer. Mm -hmm which are actually preventable with uh, either primary sec or secondary prevention, meaning you know either you uh, don't smoke to begin with, or once you get a diagnosis of high blood pressure, you take your blood pressure medication and don't end up with a stroke or a, a heart attack. And so um, this, these data suggested that there was um, an opportunity to improve the preventative take-up among African-American men of services that could be life-saving. Right. And when we looked at um, the institutional uh, missions of places like the American Medical Association, the American Association of Medical Colleges, they all have platforms that say, you know, we want to address racial health disparities in the United States. And one way we want to do this is by increasing the diversity of the physician workforce. Right. Um, so just to be clear, right now in the United States, about 13% of the population is African-American, but only 4% of the physician workforce is African-American. 4%. And so we took this uh, actually pretty seriously. And, um, and so although some correlational research had suggested that maybe having an African-American doctor was important for African-American patients to improve their satisfaction with care, as well as their take-up of preventative care, um, the results were actually a bit muddled. And that can happen when you don't have um, 
you know, when you don't have a rigorous methodological strategy. Explain that a little bit for the listeners who don't understand correlation versus causation as well as you do. Exactly. So uh, the difference is actually selection bias. So Mm -hmm. correlation just means, you know, X is associated with Y, but we're not really sure if X causes Y or not. Right. And that's, for example, um, if you just looked at the raw data and you said, well, people who go to the hospital are more likely to die and didn't adjust for the fact that people who go to the hospital are also much more likely to be sick, right. uh, that would make you think that hospitals are, are really awful places to right. be. Um, so that's in, a great analogy. That's good. <laughs> So in order to, um, you know, the gold standard that we use in in lots of clinical medicine is to do a randomized trial. So it's not whether or not you're feeling unwell that makes you go to the hospital. You actually get a lottery ticket that tells you whether or not you go or not. And then, um, and so in much the same way, we approached this problem. So we wanted to kind of uh, de-bias our estimates. And so we had... uh, subjects who we recruited from the community, and, and, and uh, Dr. Garrett can, can talk a little bit yeah, more about, about that. that. Yeah. Um, but it was really important for us to can recruit from the community, and, uh, and we, we set up a clinic, and in the context of the privacy of their patient room, they were randomly assigned, so like that lottery, to either a doctor who was African-American or a doctor who was non-black, specifically either white or Asian. Um, and so that was just a f- Flip of a coin, 50-50. Right. Right. And okay. they were all male physicians. Right. And also the doctors nor the patients were aware that we were evaluating the race, the concordance between the race of the okay. doctor and the patient or research participant in this case. Um, so they were blind in, in research parlance to that to that fact. Right, which is very important for your science. Uh, does it, how, you know, what's the ethics of that for them? It's a great question. Obviously, we got IRB uh, approval right. for uh, tell the our, entire Tell our study. listeners what IRB is. So the IRB stands for Institutional Review Board, and for the folks that are listening overseas, it, the corollary would be the IEC, the Institutional Ethics Committee. Okay. So they evaluate the study from the perspective of safety and manageable risks for the research participants. Uh-huh. And part of that safety would be um, whether or not all the risks are fully disclosed. Right. So we can argue, or you could argue, that not disclosing that we're studying race might be a risk. So the IRB right. would review whether or not that is a manageable risk and whether or not um, our study could go forward, and they did approve that. They did approve it. Although, uh, just tease us out a little bit more. Um, uh, you've shown that, you know, we're going to get to your findings. I want right. to really talk about them robustly in a minute. Uh, but if your findings are true, then those that saw African-American doctors are doing better than those that didn't. That suggests maybe that's not fair. Uh, explain why that's that's okay to do for science. Scientists. So the, the good part is, so, so from our perspective, this is a research setting. Right. Right. So, and, and to your point, if you see that there is, in most of research, studies will end for two reasons. One, there's a lot of failure. Right. Um, and then right. they will also end, for good reasons, there's a lot of success, so it's unfair to keep um, the pool in the unsuccessful or the placebo group, you know, not, you know, not experienced or exposed to the good treatment. Right. So, so in our case, you know, you could argue that, and, and well, one, it's a research setting, so there's a defined period of time that we would be doing this. 
and in our well, study, point, right? and we'll get it's to not forever. right. It's not forever, right. and, and we are we're not we weren't studying this doctor-patient relationship longitudinally, right? right? So over the long term, so we have long-term relationships with our clinicians, right? And in our research study, this was sort of a point in time. So and I, I, my sense would be that is part of the reason why the IRB felt so that was this okay. was manageable. The other the other in important term that you'll hear a lot is equipoise and what that that's means, a term I've never heard before so <laughs> tell us what that means that means that you know you're justified in doing a research project to begin with if you really are agnostic about the outcomes and I Got think it. given the state of the science that we began with um, that I described the correlational research with sort of mixed findings we really didn't know whether or not uh, you know this would actually improve uh, demand for right. preventative care. So that um, that sort of state of ignorance behind the veil type of setup is exactly what you kind of, what right. the IRB right. wants, wants to, to see and where you want to see want to be before embarking on something well, like that this. Well, that makes sense. Right. But there also must have been some intuition about the project uh, from both of your mm -hmm. perspectives. And, and how did you find each other for that matter? Sure. Like, uh, where did this come from? So we, you know, we've been doing research between the Two of us. I don't know if it's a hundred years of research experience, but it's, it's. I don't know. It's some amount of experience. And you know, the work I do is around increase in diversity in clinical trials, right. very broadly, mainly drug and device studies. Right. Because um, you want to, you know, very simply, you want to make sure that these new therapies work in all populations. Right. And the work, you know, Dr. Alshin and one of her colleagues did a, um, a seminal um, research study around the impact of the. U.S. Um, syphilis study at Tuskegee around yes. the um, uptake of healthcare services once once that study was revealed. So we've had this long-term interest, of, you know, separately, and we were introduced um, by a doctor named Bernie Lowe, who headed up. I think he still heads up the Greenwald Foundation, and we had a uh, meeting in a coffee shop, um, and they don't pay me to say the name of the coffee shop, I won't <laughs> quite advertise for them, but, you know, it's one of the big ones, you uh -huh. know, based out of Seattle and on pretty, you know, pretty much every corner in the U.S. Okay. So we had, um, I think, I don't drink coffee, so I think I had some tea. All right. And Dr. Almushin probably had a nice dark roast, maybe. And then we hit it off and realized that we can not just do something that's academically interesting, but do something that would be medically meaningful. Right. And so we began that journey maybe three, four years ago now, did some focus groups, did a pilot before this research study, because, you know, we're pretty confident folks, and but the idea of recruiting 1,300 black men for Is a research study. Is that how I wanted to ask? So 1,300? 1,345, maybe, to be precise, or so? It's something around that. And that's, that's a lot. Yeah. I mean, that's just generally a, a big number. And yeah. then when you talk about a group that hasn't always participated in research, right. um, then that becomes even more um, interesting. Uh, and then the pilot, which was around 400 um, black men, gave us the confidence that we could actually do this. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, uh, You've had a lot of press, as I, I talked about. I remember reading about it first in the New York Times. And I, one of you, or both of you, in one of those interviews said you were surprised at how clear the results were. Uh, help us understand why you were surprised, number one. I think we've talked a bit about that. But then help us understand just scientifically what a clear result in this kind of research is. 
Right. Um, so to just provide a little bit more detail about the design. Yes. So um, uh, first, um, and this is something we learned through the pilot, and, and we're very grateful to Dr. Cullen and Population Health Sciences for funding that pilot, right. really getting us started. But it was important for us to recruit um, individuals from the community. Mm -hmm. And uh, because w we were concerned that if we just used what might be called convenient samples of people who are already linked to care, um, we wouldn't necessarily be, our research wouldn't necessarily speak to these great underlying health gaps that we have in the United States, which are driven by pockets um, of inequality and, and places where people just aren't linked to care at all. Okay. So that was the, the initial motivation for going into barbershops, and that's actually where we recruited the majority people, of our right. subjects. And, and some of the men, um, so the, the um, statistics on these men, about 31% said they did not have a job, over 60% had a high school education or less. Um, Many of these men recorded uh, $5,000 or less in individual annual income. So these are, uh, these are generally men who have uh, very poor health and, um, and hadn't necessarily been seen a doctor regularly. Some of them were, but many of them were yeah. not. Um, and this is what's really generating health disparities in the United States, is to have uh, populations that are, are in, this, uh, in this situation. Um, so then, as we mentioned, we set up a clinic. We were grateful again to Stanford uh, leadership and, and the legal team here um, for their help in, in allowing us to hire the doctors and get malpractice set up for the doctors. Right, of course. Um, so you started from scratch a clinic to do this study? We, we absolutely did. Yes. We yes. absolutely did. Right. Um, and we ran it on Saturdays. We had uh, tremendous support from aspiring medical students, many mm -hmm. of whom were uh -huh. uh, hope minority. Had minority backgrounds, okay. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, um, and actually Uber donated uh, ride-sharing services. Uh, as you know, another challenge for uh, some less privileged individuals in our country is having driver's licenses, cars. Right. And so we were very grateful to Uber for that. So once they came to the clinic, uh, they were placed in a, in a patient room and uh, they were given a tablet, which randomly assigned them, was programmed right. to mm -hmm. assign the them to either... Flip of the coin, right? The right, the flip of the coin. And they saw a picture of the doctor that would eventually come to meet them. And they were introduced and all told something about the quality of the doctor. And then they were asked to choose what services they would like. And the services ranged from things that we would call non-invasive, just a blood pressure or standing on a scale to get your weight. Okay to something a little bit more invasive, like uh, taking some blood to do a cholesterol or a diabetes test, right. to actually giving a flu shot. Um, and, that, and that, in our focus group work, seemed to be the, the item that people were most apprehensive about, was actually getting an injection. Mm -hmm. um, and some of that might actually be linked to Tuskegee as well. Right. Um, so, uh, our hypothesis was that if it's something about, um, and this goes back to theories of discrimination in economics, if it's something about African-American men just not, you know, having a, a strong preference for a doctor who looks like them or a deep aversion to 
people who don't, right. then that should be elicited just based on their selections on the tablet. Okay. Once they actually see a photo of their doctor and their doctor's name, we should start to see differences in that those that were randomly assigned to have a black doctor, that should be apparent then. Um, in fact, that's not where we found any differences. There were no differences in what in that stage, which is what we call the tablet stage or the ex-ante stage. It's only in the ex-post stage where the doctor actually comes in. Before we get to that, were you surprised by that result? Did you expect to see some I I variation? thought there might be, uh-huh. right? Because you, if you figure there are these perceptions, right? So that perception, there should be some impact from that perception at that initial stage. Right. You see a black or a non-black physician, and then you decide based on just that image whether or not you're going to make any differential choices, and there was absolutely none. Okay. Certainly nothing that was statistically significant. Okay. Right. So Sorry to interrupt. So, um, then, so, so that's where we thought we would pick up any sort of, again, preference, discrimination, aversion for a particular group or another. But then you actually have the interaction. And it was, mm-hmm. for all intents and purposes, it was a full-fledged clinical interaction. Mm-hmm. That particular doctor came in. All the doctors were encouraged to, because all of these are very highly recommended preventative services, to encourage all patients to get all services. And in fact, that's really where the magic happened. That's mm-hmm. where we saw the separation, whereby subjects who were assigned to a black doctor ended up choosing many more services, particularly those that were invasive, invasive. particularly right. those that required a blood draw. And this wasn't like an actual venous puncture blood draw. This was just a finger prick right. of blood draw or the injection. That's where we actually saw uh, the, the biggest differences between the two groups. Right. And we provided no script for the physicians. Uh-huh. We, I wanted to ask it, about that. It was okay. just a direction. These are all recommended services. You should encourage them all to, to take all of them. So there's no script. You know, we didn't hire very charismatic black doctors and boring right. non-black right. Right. Exactly doctors. right. I was just thinking about and that. And to, right. that, to that point, there were, we asked the patients or the research participants to rate all the doctors and they were all rated 4.7 or so out of 5. So they were all highly so no rated. no variation on that. Oh, wow. That's even more robust. And the other thing is all the doctors who participated um, knew that the goal of the study was to provide, to increase the take-up of preventative care among African-American men. So right. the study was called the Oakland Men's Health Disparity Study. Right. Okay. They were all there on Saturdays right. giving up their time. I mean, right. these were... Um, they're all balanced statistically, yep. of course. But, I mean, I think the um, the nuance of it is just really actually fascinating. Right. And when we look at things, so so what do we think the mechanism right. is? Right, so that the causal yeah. mechanism as right. we talk the, about it. The thing we sciences. think the mechanism is behind why this concordance really matters, particularly for invasive studies, is we think it's a, uh, a difference in communication and comfort. Okay. So we asked, um, we asked questions like, uh, you know, um, d- is the patient trying to talk to the doctor about things that are not related to healthcare, um, to the preventative healthcare that we're offering? Mm-hmm. And subjects who were assigned to black doctors are 33% more likely to try and talk to them about other issues, particularly other health issues. Doctors were more likely to write down notes about the subjects, you know, communication being a, a two-way Keep street. Right. And 
And all of these results were particularly pronounced for patients or subjects, rather, who had um, higher mistrust of the medical system. So we had done a baseline survey to just ask about healthcare experiences right. and, and general trust. And it was it was really for those who had the least experience with the regular doctor, those who had been basically using the ER for care, right. those who had, again, st- scored higher on these medical mistrust um, um, questions, those are who this made the most difference for right. across our population. Yeah. Incredible finding. Um, the conclusion, as you said, uh, clear results. So we need more African-American doctors. How do we get that? That's my last question. I mean, that's a bigger societal, right. lots of variables sure. involved there. But what, do you have some suggestions for that moving forward and what other things we should do as a society to encourage that? Right. So the absolutely, we, we completely agree. And the question is, how do you do that to your point? And so you think about increasing the pipeline of potential people of color, black pre-meds, black kids in college who might be interested in careers in healthcare. Right. Um, you can think about, you know, further upstream, you know, the admissions process, um, you know, figuring how you increase numbers from an admissions perspective. Stanford has a medical school. Um, so, and there's an interest in diversity of, you know, their medical students. And then from there, we can think about, well, once you, you can successfully increase the pipeline, fill medical school classes with very sharp, engaging black physicians. And the history sh- and the research shows that many kids of color who become doctors go back to their communities to practice. So that, that's I don't think sign. we have an issue with that Okay, part. that's great. Right. So the question is then, you know, how do you get them into residency programs, these training programs? So there are many, many steps. And, you know, one thing that I think about, you know, at the beginning of the pipeline is how do you make these students more competitive applicants? Right. Right. So how do you get them to not make the errors of triple majoring in physics Mm -hmm. and chemistry and you know, being head of the basketball and soccer mm-hmm. teams, mm-hmm. but really having, you know, so they don't make those early academic mistakes. Um, so their GPAs are really strong, and then we can provide some MCAT training right. to get them strong with get know, them MCAT scores and right. get them ready with interviews and build these personal relationships, right? Because, you know, getting into med school is pretty straightforward. Yep. The 12, 13, 14 people on that selection committee decide you're the person. You know, that is as straightforward as it comes. Not, mm-hmm. not to say that's easy. Then you have to think about what are the factors that weigh into those decisions um, for our students. Right. Well, maybe we'll come back, have you back with a new study about how to do that more scientifically. But uh, congratulations on first just uh, some first-grade science, but with very practical applications for how to make our society a better place. Maybe in another time we'll have t- more time to talk about applications of this in other countries, but we don't have time now. Thank you once again for being here with us. You've been listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. If you'd like this episode, please review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. And be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on what's happening in the world and why. I'm Michael McFall for World Class. See you next time.